I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on February 28th, 2022. Episode 56, Evaluating Our Freedom After the Pandemic. Before getting into this week's topic, it is important to acknowledge what is happening right now in Ukraine. A lack of leadership from the West has allowed Vladimir Putin to march into parts of this independent nation with little to no pushback or response from the West. That is not to say that any particular nation, and the United States in particular, should introduce military aid or military forces, but that the push by Russia to enter an independent country's borders militarily is a clear sign that the world is both changing and not changing. The Russian goal is becoming blurred with the Soviet goal leading up to that empire's collapse late last century. But what is perhaps most concerning from the West's response is that liberal pet projects, from climate change policies to open borders, are standing in the way of minimizing the negative effect Russia's hostile actions could have on us, the people of the United States. One of the first things President Biden did in his administration was to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. This decision almost single-handedly took us from recently achieved energy independence to a situation where we, along with much of Western Europe, are dependent on the likes of OPEC and Russia for oil needs. The reason for making this change? To protect the climate. But even a quick passing thought about this decision reveals its folly. Shutting down our domestic pipeline and curtailing offshore drilling and fracking did not reduce consumption of fossil fuels, but merely shifted the provider of such fuels from ourselves to not-so-friendly other nations. Even for those with a goal of zero emissions or zero use of fossil fuels, Wouldn't it be better, while we do still rely on them, to rely on our own resources and production? And wouldn't our continuing to be a player in production at higher levels also reduce the impact of Russia's decisions related to oil exports now? That said, those closer geographically to the horrors unfolding in Ukraine are realizing that lofty goals cannot stand in the way of immediate policy and security needs. It is for that reason that though originally announcing no sanctions against Russia would involve SWIFT, the key international banking system, some such sanctions are now being imposed. 
it also explains why Germany completely changed course from its no military aid to Ukraine to now providing military aid in the form of providing anti-tank defense and surface-to-air missiles to Ukraine and announcing its first in decades plan to grow its own military, where Germany's post-World War II response to national security threats has been decidedly non-military to avoid appearing in any way aggressive, its own leaders now admit that this Russian invasion drastically changes the world. Chancellor Olaf Scholz said last week, With his invasion of Ukraine on Thursday, President Putin created a new reality. This reality demands a clear answer. We've given one. This was in response to Germany's announcing the military aid would be provided and German military forces emboldened and bolstered by more investment financially. As the situation in Ukraine unfolds, let's hope others in the West, including our own leaders, recognize the danger posed by Russia's bold move and similarly take proper actions to protect their own security interests in the face of a nation, in, in the fa- face of a nation allied with other such nations that is all too willing to ignore the sovereignty of foreign countries. Where the world seemingly, at times for better and at times for worse, work together to combat COVID-19, let us not forget that there are still enemies willing to do whatever is necessary to grow their empires and crush their enemies. And for that reason, one key factor of any national security policy and program should be self-sufficiency. And we can be self-sufficient if only our leaders will allow it. In early 2020, when news stories began to break about a novel coronavirus identified in the Wuhan area of China, few took notice. News of new viruses is not new. H5N1 or bird flu, H1N1 or swine flu, Ebola, Zika, SARS, MERS, seems like almost every year had a new virus. All 21st century news stories of outbreaks of often deadly viruses tended to go with little notice. So when the World Health Organization announced on January 9, 2020, that there was a mysterious new coronavirus of unknown origin in China, little notice was taken by the actual public. By January 20th, reports of this new virus were coming out of Japan and Thailand. And just a day later, a confirmed case of what would now be called COVID-19 occurred in the United States. Confirmation of human transmission and the shutdowns of Wuhan followed. And by January 31st, a global health emergency was declared by the World Health Organization. This was the start of fear-driven policy and a failure of government priorities that continues to minimize the importance of freedom in the face of any threat that politicians either don't or are unwilling to understand, and that provides a fear on which to quiet the public, a public that, absent the creation of this fear, would have revolted much earlier to lockdowns, shutdowns, mask mandates, and other governmental controls that followed the introduction into society of this virus. No doubt, as discussed in prior episodes, the virus is real. The virus was dangerous, though less so now, with evolving immunity from prior infections and vaccinations and the better understood characteristics of the virus itself. And the virus did require some government action. By March 2020, the virus was so widespread that it was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization and governments around the globe started taking action. The death toll was high, and mistakes were made along the way, which is to be expected. What should have been anticipated and guarded against, however, is the known tendency of those in power to seize power under the guise of providing security in a way that is far broader than necessary and unlikely to end when the emergency has ended. 
and with an invisible virus, who has the authority or ability to say with any certainty that the emergency has in fact ended? Keeping citizens, particularly United States citizens, confined to their homes is against any understanding of liberty. If for a defined and temporary period, it may be constitutionally and morally acceptable in theory. And masking, an activity often prohibited by law because of the risks inherent in allowing one to hide one's face, may be appropriate in medical situations and certain other close gatherings, but cannot possibly be believed to have been much effect when the type and material of mask was left to individual choice, often fashion choice if many of the photos of masked Americans are to be considered. And what about consideration of the balance between actions taken to combat the virus and the risks of those very actions themselves? At the start of the pandemic, there seemed to be some logic and calculated consideration. Who remembers 14 days to slow the spread? That seemed reasonable. It was also more honest than later political moves, because the goal was then, and should have remained, slowing the spread, not stopping it, an entirely impossible feat in today's world. Slowing the spread would avoid overwhelming medical care providers and facilities, or at least increase the chances of avoiding such overloads. And it would buy time for further research and understanding of the real risks posed by the virus and how best to treat it and who was most at risk of serious disease. Maybe 14 days wasn't enough. Maybe it was too much. Maybe no amount of time would have been enough. We can look back in hindsight all we want, but the issues that form the focus of this episode are not where mistakes were made necessarily. Man will always make mistakes confronting an unknown. But why bad policy continued and continues to be imposed in the United States and elsewhere, long after the science indicated more harm than good was coming from such policies, and where the clear emergency of early 2020 was no longer in play. This episode hopes to explore how our experience with COVID-19 has highlighted the willingness of those in charge to grab power at the first opportunity and not to let it go, and the willingness of so many of us to allow this kind of power grab. To discuss this serious issue, I will highlight the key tools used in the war on the novel coronavirus, the failure to consider the harm caused by use of such tools, and the unwillingness to return those tools to the toolbox when the emergency had clearly passed. The key policies to be considered include lockdowns, shutdown of business activity, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and other policies that were imposed on those who didn't want to sit quietly and have their liberty taken. And the fact that the government seems unwilling to let go of much of the power it seized raises potentially more substantial and long-term issues for our country and the world going forward. Lockdowns around the globe were extreme. And though when first put in place, they were viewed as short-term, temporary, those imposing them were all too willing to allow them to remain in place long after any public health emergency existed at a level that could justify this kind of obstruction of personal liberty. The pandemic is over. The virus remains, as it likely was always going to remain, much like many viruses before it. But at this point, enough of us have either had the virus, had the vaccine and booster, or all of the above. The numbers, now that we have enough of them to be statistically significant, demonstrate a virus that at first we understood so little about that our treatment of it and approach to it may have done more harm than good, but that as the science and information evolved, now poses a risk comparable to the flu for most of us. But one need only to have watched any portion of the recent Winter Olympics to see how locked down China remains and is likely to remain for some time. The Chinese government, of course, has other interests, other than keeping the games on track and athletes healthy, because it seeks to impose harsh measures almost all the time on its people. 
the legitimacy of the government, control of its people, and protection of the full truth about the virus's origination and spread are all at stake if China relaxes its lockdown of its citizens. And this is not likely a surprise to world observers who are well aware of the control tactics of the Chinese Communist Party. But severe lockdowns were not the measure only of totalitarian regimes. The United States found itself, especially in some states, in a constant battle that pitted safety against our very principles, and as the data became more available, it was more and more clear that lockdowns stripped us of much more than any leader who imposed them upon us would admit. A relatively recent study out of Johns Hopkins University concluded that the toll of the lockdowns was much greater than any positive effect on controlling the virus. In that study, the true toll of lockdowns appears to include the researchers' conclusions that, quote, we find no evidence that lockdowns, school closures, border closures, and limiting gatherings have had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality, end quote. In addition, though admitting that the closing of non-essential businesses may have had some slight positive effect on mortality, the true rate of that reduction in mortality by the closure of such businesses, most likely the closure of bars, where patrons are in close contact and often suffering, suffering from impaired judgment, was likely closer to a 1% reduction than the 98% reduction claimed earlier in the pandemic by an Imperial College London study. A lot of the failure of lockdowns significantly to affect the mortality rate was that the choice among various leaders to impose such lockdowns was based on erroneous information, and information known early on to be erroneous, and that was that we were all at the same risk of death from this virus. In an upcoming book entitled The Year the World Went Mad, a scientific memoir, epidemiologist Mark Woolhouse criticizes the response of British leaders to the virus, writing, we did serious harm to our children and young adults who were robbed of their education, jobs, and normal existence, as well as suffering damage to their future prospects, while they were left to inherit a record-breaking mountain of public debt. He went on to explain, We were mesmerized by the once-in-a-century scale of the emergency and succeeded only in making a crisis even worse. In short, we panicked. This was an epidemic crying out for a precision public health approach, and it got the opposite. In yet another study by Associate Professor of Medicine at Texas Tech, Dr. Gilbert Burdine, it was concluded that a review of different responses to the pandemic, focusing primarily on Sweden, New York, Illinois, and Texas, who had all handled the pandemic differently, indicated that lockdowns may have been, quote, the greatest political error of this generation. Going on to explain, while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. Had the lockdowns been short-term, perhaps the negatives would not have been so large. But the lockdowns in most areas were not short-lived, and in some places continue today. But even as governments lifted full lockdowns, the shutdown of some businesses continued, and the political decisions as to what businesses were essential and non-essential were clearly nonsensical. In short, Lockdowns were a failure in that as more reports come out, it's becoming more obvious that such actions did more harm than good. The same is likely true of business shutdowns, which not only stopped the provision of certain goods and services, but set the economy on a downward spiral that our leaders viewed as only capable of correction via never-before-seen spending sprees. And perhaps even more damaging are the continuing shutdowns of our children's schools. As even the New York Times has been forced to acknowledge just this week, quote, there is now a consensus that children learned much less than usual and that their mental health suffered when schools were shut down for months in 2020 and 2021. 
But despite this reported consensus, that same Times newsletter story goes on to review how schools now operate to be shut down often, just a school or classroom at a time, rather than district or statewide, such that our children are still being harmed, but in a way that is less easy to track and that is less publicized. Information gathered by the Times indicates that there was much more school time lost during the Omicron surge than we may have realized. With more than half of our school children still missing at least three days of school time, 25% of them missing more than a week, and 14% missing nine or more days. These closures, school officials claim, are done out of an abundance of caution. But these decisions focus solely on the virus, a virus that still does not pose a high risk to school-aged children. And it overlooks the areas where the schools are no longer acting out of an abundance of caution. And that is in protecting these students' academic progress and mental health, and without any consideration of the economic impact when parents are forced to change work schedules to care for children who were expected to be in school. And the damage done by lost instruction and social time in a school setting is not the only harm being inflicted on our children, as many continue to be required to wear masks at school, even as statewide mask mandates for adults are being lifted. And we have to ask, with all of these policies, why are we not questioning them? Why are we just caving in and complying? Okay. Many will say, so we got it wrong on lockdowns and shutdowns, but imposing mask mandates, that doesn't hurt anyone. But is that true? And why do we comply without asking that question? In a prior episode, I did touch on some of the harms suffered by children, especially younger children's development, when they cannot see facial expressions. But is that all that is negatively affected when we're forced to cover our faces with masks? The first, and what should be most obvious problem with mask mandates, is that they were never backed by good science. Our own self-proclaimed medical experts first said masks didn't work, then they said they did, then they said they didn't unless they were the infrequently used N95 or KN95 masks. But since most of us, if wearing masks at all, wore masks likely of unknown materials, often sewn at home or sold by clothing stores or on Etsy, seeking to take advantage of the new demand for such items, and were often seen worn by those, including Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, to match their outfits, It can only be assumed that many understood from the beginning that the wearing of masks was a form of virtue signaling. I care about others even if you don't, regardless of the fact that the masks worn did little to impede the droplets carrying COVID-19 from escaping into the surrounding air. But we were told to wear masks, and many of us did. But what these masks did do was prove how easy it is to manipulate our citizens, and indeed citizens around the globe. All a government official had to say was you must wear a mask to protect yourself and your loved ones from this new virus. And many of us did just that, without question, without asking if the benefits outweighed the risks, and without any inquiry into just what we were giving up in terms of personal interaction. More and more evidence confirms that especially for school children, masking is harmful and does little to stop the spread of the virus. Yet, it's only in recent months and weeks that some states have lifted mask mandates in schools, and many school districts continue to impose them. On what basis could these mandates still be considered appropriate? University of Southern California researchers published an op-ed, first appearing in the Orange County Register back in July 2021, in which they argued that contrary to claims that continuing the school mask mandate for all students, regardless of risk factors or even vaccination status, would support, quote, a calm, supportive school environment, that the better approach was discontinuing these mandates for all students. The reason for taking this position was that the benefits of such masking were infinitesimally small, while at the same time, they were disruptive to learning and communicating in classrooms. 
these professionals, Niraj Sood, Ph.D., and Jay Bhattacharya, M.D. and Ph.D., went on to explain that the long-term harm to kids from masking is potentially enormous. Masking is a psychological stressor for children and disrupts learning. Covering the lower half of the face of both teacher and pupil reduces the ability to communicate. In particular, children lose the experience of mimicking expressions, an essential tool of nonverbal communication. Positive emotions such as laughing and smiling become less recognizable, and negative emotions get amplified. In reality, the requirement of masking children was a clear decision by policymakers to protect teachers over students, to appear to be doing something that did nothing. Something confirmed by the revelation last year that much of the Biden administration's guidance related to the school environment was being dictated to it by the teachers' unions and not by science or even good policy. To this day, for example, the state of California still has a school mask mandate policy in place, though a number of school districts and parents are finally fighting back. As an individual district in that state votes to lift the mandates, that district is often receiving notices from the insurance company that such actions may threaten their coverage if eliminating mask mandates violates state law. On the other side of things, in states that have lifted mask mandates in schools, some districts are attempting to keep them in place. And across the country, parents are fighting back. And it's a good thing they are, or their children may continue to be masked in perpetuity. Of course, it was only earlier in February that California moved to relax its statewide indoor mask mandate for vaccinated adults, that it took understanding the risks our children may be suffering before we simply asked why or said no is a concern. It is a good sign that many are now starting to push back against these poor policies that define this pandemic. California, however, is not alone in its continued imposition of mask mandates on its residents. Though Connecticut lifted part of its mask mandates, masks are still required for those over two who are unvaccinated in indoor public places. The same is true in the District of Columbia and in Illinois. Hawaii similarly still requires masks for those age five and up in indoor settings and requires businesses to deny entry to those not wearing masks. But even many of those states no longer impose a mask mandate. Um, the, even those states no longer imposing a mask mandate only lifted such orders earlier this year or late last year. And masks don't just harm children, though the harm is less for adults. It harms society. A society that will give up free will and choice in the face of shaky science is a citizenry of questionable longevity. Masks are a form of control and, and of keeping things the same. One need only look to the continued cries to keep mask mandates in place that are coming from the likes of teachers' unions and flight attendants. Who can blame a flight attendant for wanting conformity to continue this extra layer of control in the face of possibly unruly passengers? But there is no reason for such mandates. There has been no evidence of notable transmission on airplanes, despite the growing evidence that masks don't actually stop transmission. The reason is likely that the air filtration systems on airplanes actually work, without any need for masking, even if masks did work as described in an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Despite substantial numbers of travelers, the number of suspected and confirmed cases of in-flight COVID-19 transmission between passengers around the world appears small. And similarly, in an interview with Sebastian Hull of the Institute for Medical Virology at Goeth University in Frankfurt, his conclusion was explained. An airplane cabin is probably one of the most secure conditions you can be in. Even the airlines themselves seem to agree, with Southwest CEO Gary Kelly telling a Senate committee, I think the case is very strong that masks don't add much, if anything, in the air cabin environment. So what could be the reason for the continued push for air passenger masking, or student masking, or population masking in general? 
the only reasons left are the indoctrination of a sacred populace and control that we want to conform, we want our citizens to conform to what we tell them to do. So what about the vaccines and vaccine mandates? Why force vaccination, especially now where the scientific data suggests that vaccines do not curb transmission, but instead protect the vaccinated from serious disease and related hospitalization and death? If those choosing vaccination are now protected, why force this intrusion on personal choice against those who don't want to be vaccinated? It no longer makes any sense, and it probably never did. Vaccine Mandates If the vaccine, which only some in history ever have, actually stopped transmission of the virus, there may at least be some health argument for mandating them, though equally strong arguments would still remain against them from a legal and freedom standpoint. Forced vaccination is not freedom, and where those vaccinated are protected from serious illness, and where we now can see by the data that those most at risk, vaccinated or not, have comorbidities or are elderly, there is no justification for requiring general population vaccination of those who choose to take the risk of getting the virus at this point. We each choose to take risks every day that, for most of us, have a higher chance of taxing the healthcare system and or causing us serious harm or death than COVID-19. Whether smoking, driving a car, or engaging in many potentially dangerous sports, including things like football, risk is inherent to life. And at no other point in our modern history has the government been permitted, with essentially no pushback, to intrude into that life to force us to avoid all risk. The legal issues surrounding vaccine mandates will depend on who is imposing the mandate and under what authority. But for the purposes of this episode, my primary concern is why we, as a free people, are willing even to consider such population-wide mandates when the science does not support it and where the freedom of choice to seek vaccines that are so new no one can truly know the long-term health effects is one that raises clear issues of liberty. It is true, as discussed in earlier episodes, that vaccination requirements for military service, for public school attendance, and more are part of American history. But it is the willingness of so many not only to accept but to argue for federal mandates that demonstrates the real threat to our way of life. As with so many of the topics covered by this podcast, we are no longer a citizenry fighting every day for freedom, but instead a society that looks more and more to our federal government as an overlord, as the father figure expected to fix our problems, with no decision-making or risk-taking decisions left to be made by us as individuals. A nationally mandated vaccine is a bad idea. It always was, and it remains so. Luckily, the Supreme Court did step in to curb the federal government's attempted intrusion into our lives in this way. But the fact that the federal government attempted such a mandate demonstrates the brazenness with which it now acts on all issues in almost any way it chooses. Declare an emergency, declare it's necessary for our safety, and we appear ready to accept it. We have let it grow exponentially to such a state that it seeks to and often succeeds in controlling even the most private and intimate decisions. Vaccine mandates also suffer from the same overly broad application as all of the other pandemic responses. There never was and is not any reason, as there wasn't for lockdowns, shutdowns, or masks, to apply a vaccine mandate to every person. We are not all at the same risk for the virus. We never were. If evidence proved the vaccines actually stopped transmission, a reason may actually exist to push for the vaccination of those not at risk themselves, healthy adults, and to increase overall adult vaccination rates. But it does not stop transmission. Instead, these vaccines, like so many, protect the vaccinated individual from serious disease. 
So why would there ever be a reason to force vaccination if it's only to protect the vaccinated individual? Of course, these intrusions into our personal risk decisions are not unprecedented and are not limited to vaccines. Seatbelt laws are there to protect the seatbelt user and also, much like the vaccines help avoid overtaxing the healthcare industry, purportedly avoiding unnecessary public expenditures related to injuries of those not belted. But a seatbelt is not a medical decision. A seatbelt is not something that could cause side effects. And mandatory seatbelts are state policies, not federal mandates. And I'm not sure mandating seatbelt usage is a good policy, either in terms of liberty interests of the people or a matter of law. In addition, mandated behavior is a kind of coercion, and the more we accept government coercion, particularly federal government coercion, the easier it is for society to accept the next government overreach. So before leaving the discussion about all the power grabs that occurred during the pandemic and that threatened and continue to threaten our liberty, it cannot be overlooked that as more information was obtained on the virus itself, on the risks to different populations, on the effectiveness of masks, lockdowns and shutdowns, and on the development and effectiveness of vaccines, those seeking to control us went one step further by enlisting and encouraging the censorship of any dissenting opinions. From social media to mainstream media to published research, anyone against government actions to control people's activity in the face of this virus found himself often shut down and shut out of the public debate. It was no longer acceptable for differences of opinion to be voiced for consideration by the masses. The public health emergency gave those in charge a reason to claim that any different information could be proclaimed as misinformation and was thus dangerous to our very survival. And thus, such counterpoints must be silenced creating the perfect climate in which to seize even more authority and more control, this, not, this time not only over our actions, but over our thoughts. One need only have watched the recent protests of truckers in Canada and that country's reaction to them to understand that fascism is found in the pandemic response, and that the United States has not responded so differently from many other governments in taking control under the guise of some claimed necessity, only now to be reluctant to return that control to the people. There but for the grace of God goes the United States. We shall see how the similarly planned truckers run from California to D.C. and the awaiting razor wire ordered by Speaker Pelosi to protect against these ne'er-do-wells compares to the responses of supposedly less free societies. As always, thank you for listening. What this pandemic hopefully has taught us is to question our government. Whenever freedom is at stake, it is our patriotic duty to ask for what is freedom being curtailed. What is truly at stake? And what bases do our leaders, and in today's world I use that term loosely, have for imposing any policy that would jeopardize liberty? As Patrick Henry so concisely stated in relation to the importance of freedom to the human condition, give me liberty or give me death. And as Benjamin Franklin also warned, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. This principle applies as much in the face of a pandemic as in any threat a nation or a people may face. For once liberty is voluntarily surrendered, it is hard to regain peacefully. It's time Americans start asking why any of these pandemic responses remain in place, as the virus takes its place with so many other transmissible diseases as a part of the risk of living life itself. Next episode, I will discuss the world's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Following up on the recent episode leading up to Russia's entering this sovereign nation, a more broad consideration will be given to all the nations affected and what allowing Russia to make these kinds of moves unfettered means for the future of the West and democracy. Until then, 
stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales the Scepter. Copyright 2022.